This is Diapers and Disciples, episode 36. On Diapers and Disciples, we're talking about living out the Great Commission as a mom. I'm Amber O'Hearn, and today's chat is with Cassie Chesser. We're talking about everything from her experience as a wife of a Marine Corps veteran to finding out her son Wyatt had Down syndrome. We also chat about Cassie's involvement in the pro-life movement as a writer and some recommendations she has for talking with your kids when they observe that someone is different than they are. I really learned a lot from this chat with Cassie and was so grateful she could come on to share a bit about her life. Thanks for listening in today. Here's my chat with Cassie. Hi, Cassie. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you, and I thought we could just start off by having you tell us a little bit about you and about what your life looks like right now. Um, Okay, great. Well, I am a mom to five kids, um, and they are all very young, and they are very close together in age. Um, My oldest is only seven. And then next, we have my son, Wyatt, who is going to be six in about two weeks. And then I have my three girls, who are four almost three and almost one. Wow. (laughs) I had them all back to back to back. And uh, my husband is a Marine Corps veteran. He went on um, four combat deployments and he has a purple heart. And currently he's going to school full time um, with the goal of being a PA. And our second son, who is almost six, his birthday is June 5th. Um, He has Down syndrome. We received a prenatal diagnosis and I actually delivered Wyatt. I gave birth to him while Matt was in Afghanistan. Wow. Oh my Uh, goodness. So he's been out of the Marine Corps for, it'll be five years this year. And Um, how long was he in the Marine Corps for? uh, Nine years. Okay. Um, My dad was in the Air Force. I actually interviewed my mom for um, an episode of the podcast, which was really fun. So we talked a little bit about um, life as a military wife. And something I didn't really ask her much about, though, is uh, deployments and what what that's like as a military wife, having your husband gone for, you know, months at a time. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely difficult, but you get into kind of a routine. The middle part is the hardest Um, cause Mm. beginning you're just, it's almost like you're working off of adrenaline in a sense, you know, like you're just Mm. kind of, I don't know, you're, you're adjusting and you're not really, I guess, thinking about it and it's all still new. And then you get to the middle and you get into a routine, but then it's like, it feels like this is never going to end, you know, like it's, it's (laughs) right. It just, it's hard to be able to look past the monotony and realize, okay, well, this is going to be over soon. And then the end gets closer and then it's all the anticipation and the wanting the days to go by faster. And, um, but I mean, the hardest part is obviously, you know, when they leave the day they leave, that's, I mean, especially once we had Benjamin, the, you know, the first deployment when we had a child, which ended up being his last deployment, but, that was the hardest thing. Cause I'm sitting there and I was pregnant and we knew that Wyatt might have down syndrome. And I had this little I'm trying to think how old Benjamin was. Um, I don't know, maybe nine months old, you know, mm-hmm. a little baby and I'm kissing my husband goodbye. And it's like, just very much. And he's not just going out to sea on a ship, not to denigrate, you know, people who are in the Navy or whatever. Cause I mean, obviously that's dangerous too. 
but it's not the same, you know, mm-hmm. it's not the same as going out to sea or going to, you know, Spain for a couple of weeks or something, you know, like he was going to Afghanistan, he was going to war, literally going right. to war and people in his unit, you know, died on all of these deployments. You know, I, I knew some of these spouses that lost their husbands. So it's like, you're sitting there and it's the, that day has come and you're standing there and it's like, all the buses are there and you're waiting for a few hours. And it's like, you're just trying to kind of, you know, soak up every second that you can get. But then that moment comes that they call them and they have to leave. And it's the hardest thing in the world to kiss your husband mm. by and watch him walk away from you. It's like every single cell in my body was just wanting to like run after him and grab him and not let him go because it's like, well, this could be the last time I ever kiss him goodbye. This could be mm. the last time I kiss my husband, you know? And it's, yeah, it was very difficult. <laughs> That day is like the hardest day of all of them, you know, is it, mm-hmm. you have to watch them leave and you can't make them stay and you know, they may not come back. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I've talked to my mom a little bit about, um, like the community and kind of the support, like growing up, my, uh, my dad being in the military, we had that support kind of on base of other families who were going through the, you know, the same thing. Did you have, did you feel like you had that support from, um, other families? Oh, for sure. Um, we had, you know, pretty good, I feel like pretty good family readiness group. Um, our family readiness officer was, I mean, pretty helpful. You know, if you needed anything, they, he would help you, you know, even if it was just mundane things, like, and he even said this, you know, look, if you need someone to, if you need me to help you find a plumber, that's not going to rip you off, you know, like I, I will do that. If something breaks in your hmm. house, call me and I will take care of it. Cause he was a retired Marine who had stepped into this position, um, after wow. the Marine Corps was over. So he was really helpful. And I also helped to, um, during previous deployments, I'd gotten involved with, um, at Camp Lejeune, now they have it at, at bases all over the place, but it was a kickball league for spouses. And wow, yeah, I don't know who came up with it, but I started the very first season. Eventually, I became our unit's captain. But like each unit, <laughs> not all units on base did it, but a lot of units did. And and it was the wives, and so we would play like other units, and you know we all had our names like. My husband was with 1st um, Battalion, 8th Marine. So we were the crazy eights. And, Fun. you know, I, I don't remember what some of the other team names were. But, so yeah, we would have kickball practice. And we would go and, you know, have kickball games. And so that was a really great way to have fun and keep in shape. And also to kind of have some camaraderie with other wives. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. I know I have some military wives that listen to uh, the podcast as well. I'm just so grateful for your husband's service and um, the service of your families as well, just the sacrifices that are made. So uh, thank you for that. Thank you. um, And so your husband's in school now, you said, right? Is that what's going on? Yes. He he originally was using the GI Bill, but um, he was wounded in Afghanistan. And, um, so like I had mentioned, he has a purple heart. So now he's using VA vocational rehabilitation, which is basically another program that the VA offers to pay for school. Um, so he's using that and, um, his goal is to eventually become a physician's assistant. He's going to be graduating with his bachelor's degree this year, and then he'll be going to graduate school after that. Awesome. That's great. So, um, 
so your husband's in school. You guys have um, five kids, right? Is what you said, all under the age of seven and under. Yes. And you also um, work outside of the home or in the home? I work from home. Um, I mean, it, I'm a freelance writer. And so, I mean, there have been times if I'm covering covering a story or something, if it happens to be somewhere I need to go, you know, I mean, I go there, but for all intents and purposes, you know, I work outside the home or I work from home. <laughs> okay. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about your work and kind of uh, what that involves, what your routine is like? Well, right now um, I write for two places and one of them is a local website called Jacksonville Moms Blog, which is, you know, it's a website dedicated to moms in Jacksonville, Florida, which is where I live. And it's all about resources and things to do. And then also, you know, just articles about just relating to motherhood and what it's like to be a mom. So, I mean, a lot of them are relatable, even if you don't live in Jacksonville. And then others are Jacksonville specific, you know, like good date night suggestions or where to take your kids on a rainy day in the area or day trips that you can go to around here. So that's one of the places that I'm writing for right now. And the other is Live Action, which is a pro-life organization, a nonprofit organization, actually. Um, it's the one that was founded by Lila Rose, and she does the undercover investigations of Planned Parenthood. Um, so that's very notable. Um, <laughs> Lila's in the news quite often. And I write for their news arm. Okay. And so um, a lot of that work, is it based on... Um, yeah, just what's going on locally, nationwide, worldwide? Um, I mean, it really depends on each individual writer. Um, in my case, I write about things that are local or nationwide or international. It really just depends. Um, I have oh, okay. Google alerts set up. <laughs> so I get alerts all throughout the day of various topics that I happen to be passionate about. And so sometimes it might be something that's local to me. Um, for example, a while back, there was a pair of um, conjoined twins, Connor and Carter, that were that were here in Jacksonville, and they were born here in Jacksonville, and they have they were successfully separated, but that made national news. But because it was like local to my area, you know, I specifically wanted to follow it. And I think I was the one who originally discovered it too, because it was local, and so right. about that. And I want to say that the mom had even like they had recommended abortion, and she refused. And hmm. Connor and Carter were born, and like I said, successfully separated. So that was like a local story and it can go from that to international, whether it's, you know, I write a lot about assisted suicide, which is especially, um, growing in places like Belgium and the Netherlands and Switzerland and so on. Um, it's especially nefarious there or Ireland. They're mm -hmm. talking about overturning their eighth amendment, which would make abortion legal there. So, I mean, it really just depends it's, you know, yeah. happens to be going on in the news in the world that day. Sure. So how, how did you originally get involved in pro-life advocacy and, and how long has your work been going on your involvement with the movement? I started working with live action, um, almost 10 years ago. I think it was nine years ago specifically, but okay. it's been a long time. I've been with them. It feels like forever. <laughs> uh, I think yeah. I've been with them longer than I've been married. Um, <laughs> yeah. at this point, I don't even remember how I came on board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
just that I did at some point somehow. And mm-hmm. so, but I mean, I've, I've always been pro-life and mm-hmm. so somewhere, you know, I, I got the opportunity to write for live action and I jumped on that because I knew the work that they had done with their, um, like with the undercover investigations and the sting videos. And so I knew that this was an organization that I would be passionate about working for and that they do good work. And so jumped on that and I'm not involved in the investigation side at all. Um, I'm strictly, I'm a writer. I write for them and that's what I do. So did you have a background in writing then or, uh, or journalism at all? Yes. Um, I started when I was in high school, actually. Um, our local newspaper had just launched, I feel like this is going to age me a lot, but they had just launched their website. (laughs) (laughs) Um, maybe not like literally like just that year, but it was still a new, Uh and they had asked for people to come on board as community columnists. And I think I was about 15 or 16 or so, and I applied and it wasn't paid. It was just one of those things, you know, I guess people would do kind of to get your name in print or whatever. And I wanted to be a journalist. And so for me, I saw it as a way to get my foot in the door. Hmm. So I started doing that when I was in high school and that led to an internship with the Times Union. And I, again, worked um, almost entirely online Um, which was still a new thing. And I covered sports primarily, um, but also current events and things that were going on. Um, And it was very, since it was online at the time, it was very like, I had to take pictures and do video and write. And I had to learn how to, you know, this was one of the things that I kind of wonder now if this is like obsolete, but I had to learn how to take the, you know, the stories from the print edition and get them into the online edition. And, huh. you know, <laughs> yeah. it was all very old school internet, you know, and um, so that was how I got my start. And then from there, eventually I kind of branched into blogging, which no one thought would be a career. You know, my, my parents and even my now husband at the time, you know, everyone thought that it was crazy and that it was never going to go anywhere and you can't make your career as a blogger. And here we are. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. Wow. Do you have your own personal blog now as well? Or do you just write for live action and, um, and the local? I used to, um, I used to have my own website and then I would also write for a variety of different websites. But, um, after I had my first, uh, child, my first son, I kind of took a step back from working for a little while and um, let the personal blog go. And then as I started kind of gearing up to get back to writing more and working more, um, it just was easier to stay a freelancer, so to speak, because the internet has changed so much now. You know, you don't really see as many personal blogs really take off. I mean, lifestyle websites maybe, but even then it's not really so much about a personal blog. It's a lifestyle site, you know, or whatever the case. So that's just really not what, that's really not where you make money anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's all about, and I remember back in the day, 
you know, that was what some people I knew, they predicted, they're like, oh, these individual blogger websites, those are going to go by the wayside. It's going to all be about the group blogs. That's what we called hmm. them back then. Group blogs. <laughs> uh, they, were, they were right. <laughs> so I've got to ask you, because you have young kids and your husband's in school and you when do you when do you find the time to write? Do you write at a certain time every day? Um, no. <laughs> um, it, it's usually easiest in the morning because three of my kids are in school. The three oldest, um, okay. Benjamin, Ivy. So when they're in school, it's kind of the house is much quieter and it's a lot calmer and it's easier. But um, I mean, really, it's not all that difficult. That's one of the benefits of having kids that are so young and so close together in age is they're kind of their own entertainment. <laughs> mm, yeah. They also fight a lot. So it's like, that's more the, I mean, even when it's only one or two of them, I'm, unless they're sleeping, I'm going to get interrupted a lot. That's just the way <laughs> I have to, you just have to learn to kind of roll with the punches and go with the flow. And, um, you know, that's just the way it goes. And I'm, I'm used to it at this point. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Because if, but, breaking, if there's some kind of breaking news, I can't say no, I can't. I mean, I, I technically can't. I don't want to say no, I can't do this because mm-hmm. I want. I need to be available pretty much at any time. Sure. Yeah, I have a I have a four and two year old now, and um, I do think it's helpful when there's more than one of them and they're playing together. And you're right, there are some arguments, of course, but <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, when you're working from home, it's hard because those interruptions are just bound to happen. Yeah. Um, but that makes sense. So, uh, well, as you mentioned, one of your children, um, has down syndrome. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you found out about that, you said your husband was just about to go on an, on a deployment. Um, he actually deployed. So, he was gone when I found out. Um, oh, okay. So what was that experience like for you? Yeah. So, well, with my first pregnancy, I got the nuchal translucency screening. And the only reason I did it was because I didn't want to wait until 20 weeks for an ultrasound. So, so I did it with Ben and it was like, Oh, there's my cute baby. And you know, it was fine. And it just, you know, no big deal. And then, so with my second pregnancy, it was the same thing. You know, I wanted the ultrasound and it just never even crossed my mind that it would come back positive, Hmm. but it did. Now, what the nuchal translucency screening does is it is a combination of ultrasound and blood test. And those two things together, they put them together and it comes back either positive or negative. Now, it's not diagnostic. It is essentially your odds. Um, If your odds are over a certain threshold, then it's positive and they're going to refer you for more testing. Um, In my case, it had to have been something in the blood test because what they're looking at is the thickness of the baby's nuchal fold, which is like the the fold on the back of the neck. Hmm. Wyatt's a little bit high, but it was in the normal range still. So it wasn't abnormally high. Um, So they're looking for some kind of proteins in your blood or something. I don't know. But my results came back one in six. I had one in six odds essentially that my baby would have down syndrome. And at the time, my obstetrician was very reassuring. She said, look, one in six, it sounds really scary, but that's still an 80% chance that your baby's going to be perfectly healthy. And I remember, you know, thinking, you know, she's right. It's, you know, it's fine. And now I know that one in six is astronomically high. It might as well have been like, look, your kid has down syndrome, Mm -hmm. but (laughs) I'm sure she's just 
to reassure me and keep me calm. Um, but so from there, I got referred to a maternal fetal medicine specialist who would do a higher level ultrasound to look for more soft markers. And this is where we were before Matt deployed. Um, we had gone and gotten another ultrasound from the specialist and there weren't really any major soft markers. There was like one little, um, like bright spot on his heart. And that was pretty much it. Um, there are things that they look for, like the absence of the nasal bone. Um, if you see people with down syndrome, often their noses kind of have the flat bridge. Hmm. So they look for that in the, um, in the ultrasound, um, they'll look for things like shorter arm and leg bones because people with Down syndrome tend to be shorter. Um, if your pinky finger, if they can't see the pinky bone, it's still there. I mean, they have pinky fingers, but for some reason, that's one of the markers they can look for. The pinky finger appears to be missing because something about the bone. I don't even know why. It's the strangest thing. But these are ideas of what they're looking for. They're not diagnostic in and of themselves, but it's kind of an indication of, you know, do we think this baby has Down syndrome or not? In our case, we didn't really have a ton of soft markers. So the specialist said, you know, look, it's up to you. You can get the amniocentesis or not. And the way that works, this is the only diagnostic test. And I just want to really stress that because there's a lot of people that get these blood tests that are, you know, kind of sold as being diagnostic and 99% accurate. They're not, they are not, they are diagnostic tests or they are not diagnostic. They're screening tests. They're not diagnostic. The only thing that can give you a definitive diagnosis is an amniocentesis. And so the way that that works is they take this giant needle yeah. <laughs> and they put it into your stomach, into your uterus, and they withdraw amniotic fluid and they test the cells in the fluid. And you felt like you, you wanted to get that because I know we had some health complications with our, our daughter and then, um, we'd heard that there were, you know, some risk uh, factors with the amniocentesis. So we decided against it. But at that point you felt like, okay, I, I would, I want to know before I have my baby. Is that what you were thinking? Uh, yes. I, I yeah. just, I, I couldn't, I was already really stressed out and upset and I'd already been doing a lot of crying because I was scared, you know, of what might sure. potentially happen. And I just thought, you know, I can't go my whole pregnancy not knowing. And so mm -hmm. I just said, okay, I'm going to do this. Yeah. So Matt deployed on January 1st, which was a Sunday that, that year. Um, so he left on a Sunday and then two days later is when I went to get the amnio done on a Tuesday. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so he didn't get to be there. And this was one of the, you know, where you talked about the support system. Um, one of the wives from the unit came with me and she held my hand and mm. we didn't have to be alone alone. Um, I just, you know, tried to make sure to stare at the ceiling the whole time because I didn't want to see the giant needle going in my stomach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it didn't hurt as much as I thought it was going to. You know, I had heard that it was like excruciatingly painful and it was just mostly uncomfortable. Like there was pressure more than anything. Mm -hmm. And the doctor said that he could run a set of tests that could give the results in a couple of days if I wanted them as opposed to a couple of weeks. And of course, I'm like, well, yes, you know, yeah. I want to know as soon as possible. And so that was a Tuesday and on Friday, Friday evening at like six o'clock, it was really late. Well, not late, late, but you know, it wasn't within normal business hours. 
um, I got the phone call and it was a nurse. And she said, you know, she asked if she could speak to Cassandra. And I said, yes. And she said, okay, can you hold for the doctor, please? And mm. as soon as she said that, you know, I'm like, okay, it's positive, you know, because yeah. they're not, they're not going to get the doctor on the phone to say, oh, hey, everything's fine. Um, so the doctor came on the phone and he, you know, said, we got the results back and it, they came back as male positive for, for trisomy 21 or down syndrome. And he asked if I had any questions or if I needed anything. And I told him no. And, um, we made our next appointment and, you know, I just wanted to get off the phone like as quickly as possible. And then I just cried. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally for like three days straight, I was just like sobbing and bawling and it was, I mean, it's kind of funny now in retrospect because Matt was able to call that night from Afghanistan and I told him and he's just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Like, All right, no big deal. That's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was sitting there like, you know, hysterical and I was so upset. Yeah. And then I felt guilty on top of that, that I was upset. So I'm sitting there like, what kind of mother is upset about, you know, her baby? So it was just very difficult. Um, time. So when did that, when did that change happen for you where you were able to come to, you know, a place of peace and acceptance, like where your husband was? It just took, I mean, a little bit of time. Everyone gets there. And this is one of the things that I understand now is that this is a pretty much a universal reaction. I have met one person, one of the countless Down syndrome parents that I have met one person that has said, Oh, I was fine. I didn't have any Mm. problem with it, you know? And I'm, I don't even know if I really believe this person to be completely honest, (laughs) but everyone goes through this. They have some kind of adjustment. They may not literally cry hysterically like I did, but everyone has, you know, their fears and like, it's like a grieving period. The child that you expected that you were going to have is gone. And it's okay. I understand that now. It's okay. You have to go through the process. It's just what it is because, and we'll, I have a feeling we'll talk about this more, but I mean, we live in kind of an inherently ableist society. And so disability is seen as something to be feared. And that was my kind of point of view. I had never known anyone with Down syndrome. I'd never met anyone with Down syndrome. Now I was going to have to raise a kid with it. Mm -hmm. And it was terrifying because all I knew were the stereotypes. You know, I I just thought of, oh, well, it's going to be this kid that's going to get bullied and picked on and he's not going to have any friends and he's going to be stupid and he's going to need all this help and he's going to have all these health problems and he's never going to be able to do anything. And, you know, none of that is true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that was the image that I had in my head because I didn't know better. And so yeah. that kind of got me on the road to accepting it more was because after my few days of pretty much crying nonstop, it was like, okay, I have another kid I have to take care of. I have to pull myself together. And, you know, little by little, I started kind of researching and trying to find more information. And I reached out to the extraordinary family member program on base and to our local down syndrome group um, up in North Carolina. And I started trying to kind of marshal my resources and find out more information. Hmm. And the more I learned, the more kind of reassuring it was. And the moment though, that really kind of made all of the fear and sadness go away I was at one of my doctor's appointments and he was explaining to me how most babies with a chromosomal abnormality, which is what down syndrome is, 
most of them end up as miscarriages or stillbirths. And so it was kind of this moment where before then I had been thinking of Wyatt as like this weak little baby, you know, like this weak thing that was never going to be able to do anything. And it was like, I kind of realized, well, wow, like just by surviving up till now, like he's already beaten the odds, like 80% mm-hmm. of babies with chromosomal abnormalities are miscarried 80%, wow. you know, so it's like, wow, this is like my little fighter. Mm-hmm. So that was like the moment that I realized, you know, that it was going to be okay. And That's it awesome. had an amazing doctor, you know, a lot of doctors in these circumstances really pressure moms to have abortions or give them outdated information or really emphasize the negative aspects of Down syndrome. And my doctor did not do any of that. He was amazing and he was very positive and really helped connect me to resources. And he would just say little things like, you know, at one point he was pointing out that his legs and arms were short, um, which is typical for people with Down syndrome. And he had said, you know, that's not a big deal though. That just means that when he's playing soccer in five years, he'll be one of the shorter kids out there. No big deal. Hmm. You know, it's such a small thing, but it's like, just to say that not if, but Hey, when in five years he's playing soccer, just like, every that's awesome. day, you know, it, it was, it was so reassuring to hear things like that. Hmm. That's great. I love that. It's so awesome to hear that you just had such a great, great doctor who was supportive and encouraging through that. Um, so I, you mentioned ableism, and I want to ask you a little bit about it because I actually hadn't really heard the term until um, you mentioned it when we were emailing back and forth. So could you tell us a little bit about it and um, maybe a little bit kind of, of what, you fa- what you have found in our culture um, with that? Well, ableism is essentially discrimination against people with disabilities. So it's not Down syndrome specific, but um, Mm -hmm. obviously that's, I mean, part of it. And ableism for babies with Down syndrome, you can see primarily um, in abortion is one of the biggest issues. Um, It's not as bad in the United States as it is elsewhere, but here still the majority of babies that are diagnosed prenatally are aborted. Um, It's roughly 65 to 70%. Um, in other countries like Iceland, it's pretty much a hundred percent, um, or Denmark or the Netherlands and, you know, all of these other countries that the rate is significantly higher in the United Kingdom. They have laws that ban abortion after 24 weeks, unless your child is diagnosed with a birth defect or disability, and then it's okay to have a late abortion even if you're 38 weeks, it's okay. Even if it's as small as a cleft lip, a cleft Mm. lip, you can have an abortion in the United Kingdom in your third trimester when for a baby that doesn't appear to have a disability, you can't. So that's an example of ableism. Um, One thing that I've had to kind of go through and, you know, other Down syndrome moms I know is, you know, education, um, getting your child good education, it should not be this hard, but it's incredibly hard because mm-hmm. everything in the school system is pretty much stacked up against you. And you really have to fight to get your kid, not just to get education, but also the, the resources that they need because most school systems, they don't want to work towards inclusion. They don't want to go above and beyond for your kid. They just kind of want you to go into a special ed classroom and go away and stay there. And, you know, that's not the way it should be. And 
more widespread in the culture. I mean, you, it just think about it. Like when you look in the media, how often do you see positive portrayals of a person with any kind of disability? The only thing I can think of right now is the show Speechless, which is amazing. And I hope everyone watches it because if you're not already, it's hilarious for one thing. It's genuinely a funny, funny show, but it's such a wonderful portrayal of disability. Hmm. I've never even heard of it. Is it on like so TV or on Netflix? Yes. No, it's a TV show. Um, I think it's on ABC. Okay. Um, the second season just finished, but it has mini driver and, um, it features, they have, it's a family and there's three children, mom and dad and three children. And the um, oldest son has cerebral palsy. And so mm-hmm. in the movie, he cannot speak. Um, like mentally, he has all of his faculties, but he can't speak. So he has like a speech board, does the name speechless. Um, he can still communicate, communicates through an aid. Um, and it's just this great show. It's so funny. But then it also tackles these great, great topics about disability and that are just honest and heartwarming and it portrays disability in a really positive way. Like you can clearly see that JJ, the character with a disability, I mean, yes, he he has a disability, but he's still talented and smart and he still has a future and, you know, is interested in dating and it's, it's, it's just a wonderful show, Mm -hmm. but it's the only one. It is the only thing like that. If you look elsewhere, you see things like me before you, which just infuriates me so much. And that's the prevailing thing that you see where it's like, oh, it's, it's this millionaire. He gets in a car accident and he becomes a quadriplegic, which is a fate worse than death. So he goes and gets himself assisted suicide. Literally, that's the plot. Mm-hmm. And it's a book and a movie. And it was just lauded as this wonderful love story. And I'm sitting here going this isn't a beautiful love story. This is terrible. This is a terrible, terrible book and movie, but it's just applauded all over the place. And people are, you know, calling it romantic. And I'm sitting there going, no, it's not, it's not at all, but that's Mm. people. And that's what you see, especially not so much in the United States now, but, um, I'm sure that will happen eventually, but in places like Canada and Belgium and the Netherlands and so on, um, where assisted suicide has been legal for a long time, um, you can have yourself killed. You can be euthanized because you have a disability. So things like that, that's ableism in action. And it's there in a million different ways. And a lot of people don't even realize it because it doesn't affect them. Hmm. And I didn't either. I'm not saying that in a way to be like accusatory because until I had Wyatt, I had no idea. I went or just kind of went along my business and it never would have occurred to me. Right. But now I do. So I try to do what I can to you know, advocate and educate. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's so helpful. Just, just hearing you talk about it a little bit. And I wanted to ask you about something else because I've had a couple experiences uh, with my daughter who's four now of going to like a playground or we're out and about and she observes someone who, you know, is different in some way from her. You know, we have seen someone the other day who is uh, blind or someone in a wheelchair. And um, so I wanted to get your opinion, your thoughts on when we have our child come up to us, you know, and they observe that someone's different and then they ask about it. How, how do you, how would you recommend um, talking to your child about that? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that because I think that that's really important um, as parents because 
I think you and I probably both know, and any adults listening to this, we didn't grow up around people with disabilities, which is kind of what feeds into the ableism and Mm -hmm. not really knowing about disabilities, because how would we know? No one told us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're anything like me, you know, if you were a kid and you saw someone who looked different and you asked your mom about it, they probably tried to like, you know, no, no, don't say that, you know, be quiet. It's like, and that's the worst thing that you can do because that's reinforcing the notion that this, this person who has a disability, this is something that's bad. This is something that's maybe a little bit scary. And, you know, you don't want to talk about someone that's different. Um, just talk to them about it. You know, it's not a secret. I had a girl come up to me and I remember it was the first time that anyone had ever asked me and it was a little girl. She was maybe like five. Um, but anyone had ever noticed why it being different, but she came and she asked me why he has bendy eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Sweet. And it, I mean, it threw me for a loop because I was just not prepared. I figured when he got older, I would have to deal with those questions more, but he was Uh still so young. I was like, Oh, I'm not prepared for this at all. But she didn't have any kind of malicious intent there. She just, you know, she just, well, why are his eyes like that? And I said, well, you know, everyone's different. And she goes, Oh, what's his name? You know? And that was it. Hmm. Like it doesn't, they don't know that it's something negative until we give them that perception. So if, you know, you see someone that's different, that's out of the park or at church or whatever, you know, say, yeah, they are, they are a little bit different, but guess what? Everyone's different. You know, like mommy has brown hair and you have blonde hair, you know, she's in a wheelchair and that's how she gets around and you use your legs. You know, everyone's different. But look, she likes ice cream just like you do. Hmm. Why don't you go see if she wants to play with you? Hmm. Um, and, you know, every parent may be different, but most parents of children with disabilities that I know, we don't mind if you ask questions. You know, it's okay. Like I would much rather someone come up to me and ask me about Down syndrome then, you know, try to keep it quiet because no one's ever going to learn or become educated or anything like that if it's this big secret. So I think it's much better to talk openly with your child about it and don't sit there and shh and don't look, you know, encourage them to go play with them, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, well, that little boy is, you know, having a harder time, you know, climbing up the the ladder on the playground because he has down syndrome and it takes them a little bit longer to do things, but look how much fun he's having going down the slide now, just like you. Why don't you go see if he wants to play with you on the swings or whatever? And for kids, that's usually enough. They just want an answer. They're curious. They're not looking to, they're not trying to go, Hey, what's up with that freak over there? You know, they just want to learn to teach them. It's a teaching opportunity. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Yeah, I love that answer. That's beautiful. So um, I guess I think sometimes the fear is that, um, I guess for myself, that I might say something like wrong or offensive. So even terms like, uh, I tend to use the term special needs, but I don't even know, is that that term, would you say appropriate to use? Or are there certain terms that you use um, or terms that we should avoid when we're explaining things to our kids? Um, I mean, the only really offensive word is the R word. Um, that's the only one that's outright offensive. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's not even something that's used. A lot of people try to say, oh, well, it's just the medical terminology to say that your kid is, you know, quote unquote retarded. And it's like, well, no, that's not the medical terminology anymore. They don't, 
that's that's not what the medical community uses. It's it's intellectually disabled or intellectually delayed or developmentally delayed or whatever. Um, mm. But now we don't use the R word anymore. So there's no context in which that's appropriate. That's the only word that's offensive. Okay. Um, that said, there are, it's, it's a little bit different by community. Um, and a good example is Down syndrome versus autism. In the Down syndrome community, it's very big on people first language. And what that means is you're not defining the person by their disability. It is not a Down syndrome person. That's borderline offensive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, And I wouldn't have ever thought about it before I had Wyatt. But when you do stop and think about it, it's like, you know what? Yeah, that makes sense. You know, to say, oh, that Down syndrome baby over there. You wouldn't say that about like a typical kid. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not, they're not defined by their disability. Um, So don't define them by their disability. So it's it's people with Down syndrome, a child with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. But in the autistic community, it is actually the exact opposite. They apparently prefer you know, saying an autistic person, autistic girl, autistic boy. Um, so that's why it's not something, I mean, I have my preferences, obviously, for people first language. I think that's better. And that's probably the safer bet. But I, in general, as long as you don't use the R word, you know, it's it's pretty much okay. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And even like the examples you were giving um, before about talking to your children about how everyone's different and you were saying like most parents are going to be totally welcome to you coming up and asking and having your child you know meet their child and um, yeah that's that's good to know so Cassie what would you say is your favorite part of your home and why um if I if it's hard to pick just one room but if I had to choose um, it would probably either be the kitchen because I really love to cook um, so I really like being in there and making food for my family or my bedroom, um, mainly because my bedroom is the only place that I can go and get like quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel ya. It would be one of either those two. That's great. And what have you been loving recently? Um, well, I'm a big reader. I always have been ever since I was a little kid. Um, and since we moved back to Jacksonville, um, they have a really great local library here. And in the past, um, I don't know, a few months or so, I've been really, really obsessed with going to the library like all the time because they just have such a great everything, the way they have it set up. I mean, you can go online and I can order books so I can, even if a bunch of them have holds and I know I'm going to be waiting like months and months, it'll notify me, you know, when it's available, like when it's, it's my turn in the list. And so if there's something that's like a brand new release, that's going to have lots of people wanting to read it. Um, like there was this book, little fires everywhere. I guess that was an example. It took me months to, yeah, but I could just go in there and whatever books I want, I just go and I say where I want them to pick, where I want to pick them up from and reserve it. And then it will email me when it's time. And if the checkout date, um, the due date comes up and I'm not done yet, I can just renew them online really easily. I just go in there and I can click renew and extend my deadline. And then not only that, but then they also have all kinds of great classes. Um, they do concerts in the library with the Jacksonville Symphony that are free. So they'll have that's crazy. <laughs> That's awesome. It's not the full symphony, but they'll have like, say, you know, like 
four of the violinists come in and they'll give a performance or uh, wow. you know, like flautists or whatever the case may be, but they will do that like all over um, the city and it'll be completely free or they do story time for kids and um, legal advice and just all kinds of stuff. So it's way more than just a library and I've been really obsessed with it um, recently because I mean, I love to read. So I've been reading like a ton. My kids love to go there and it's just, it's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love our library too. Do you ever have the issue? I know I, I do that thing where I will uh, go online to, you know, reserve books ahead of time. Mm-hmm. But then it always happens where it's like three or four books are ready at the same time. And then I'm like stressed out because I'm trying to read them all at the same time. I don't know if that's just me or if you ever have have that happen to you. <laughs> well, almost always. <laughs> But yeah, <laughs> I will reserve like six or seven books at a time because I know that I'm going to get them like staggered. And so, you know, I'll usually get three or four at a time and it'll email like, again, it notifies me. Okay, well, your books are ready to be picked up from this branch. And so, you know, I go pick them up and um, read them. And it, it's, it's really not a big deal because like I said, if I need more time, I, I can extend my deadline. Yeah, that's awesome. So are you reading anything uh, currently that you're really enjoying? Um, Right now I'm reading a book called Defending Jacob, which is um, a fiction about a father whose 14-year-old son is accused of murdering one of his classmates. And the father is um, a district attorney, so he's a prosecutor. And so it's like all about, you know, well, how far would you go for family? How do you grapple with, you know, the truth versus your love for your children and, and that kind of thing. And so it's, um, it's not blowing me away, but it's, it's okay. <laughs> okay. Have you read anything this year that you would really recommend that you, that you enjoyed? Um, I really liked the book Lilac Girls, which was, um, it takes place in World War II and it involves, um, the Ravensbrook concentration camp, which was a female, all female concentration camp. And it was mainly um, like political prisoners of war, um, like women who would work for say the Polish resistance. And um, they had, and and this is a real life story. They had uh, medical experiments done on them, um, primarily on their legs and they would cut their legs open and, um, like stuff things in there, like shattered glass or dirt and straw and whatever, and um, knowingly infect them with tetanus and that kind of thing. And their reasoning was, is they wanted to see, well, how can we better um, treat German soldiers in the field? That was the excuse behind it. And so the book follows two real life historical women and one who is like the Polish girl who was in the concentration camp. Um, she's kind of based on, you know, real women, but she's not an actual real woman. Um, but the real women okay. are Caroline Faraday, who was an American socialite. And in real life she did, um, after the war was over, she took all of these women who survived Ravensbrook to the United States, paid out of her own pocket, really advocated for them to get them good medical care and, you know, the book translates between Kasha, the Polish teenager, her perspective, Caroline's perspective, and then um, Dr. Oberhauser. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But she's a real life female Nazi doctor who 
committed these atrocities against the girls. So it, it goes through those three perspectives. Um, mm. And um, one, it was called Endurance. And this was an autobiography written by Scott Kelly, who was an astronaut who spent over a year in space. Um, he has a record for the longest time spent in space of like any human being. And so that was a really interesting nonfiction book. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Thanks for those. I always love um, adding books to my list. It's getting a little long, but <laughs> slowly I'll work my way through them. Another one that was really good too, that was nonfiction. I've been really more into nonfiction lately than fiction, but was Radiant hmm. Girls. That one's been really, um, I've noticed a lot of people reading it lately, but it's about the girls who would paint dials, watch dials in World War One with like radium based paint. And so mm. they all got radiation poisoning and, and a lot of them died really horribly, but it's like they had such bravery and courage because they took on, you know, these major corporations, even though they were women, young women. I mean, a lot of them like teenagers. Um, yeah early 20s and you know the early 1900s they had basically no rights but they still like battled and fought and refused to give up and because of them that's why we have a lot of our workman's comp and OSHA regulations and everything that are in place now oh wow interesting so it was a sad book but it was also inspiring at the same time in a weird yeah. way yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that sounds great that's really interesting um and then my last question for you is do you have any mom hacks to share um I don't really have any hacks. I don't think, um, mostly just, you know, my tip when people ask, you know, well, how do you do it? And I, I just tell them, well, you have to learn to love the chaos. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's good. I can't do everything. I can't be everything. I can't work from home and raise my kids and make sure they're fed and be a good wife and go get them from school every day and make sure the house is perfect. I can't do everything. You know, I have to I have to choose to let some things go. And much to my husband's consternation, that's usually the cleanliness of the house. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I have to I have to be able to overlook the clutter or, you know, if the playroom is a little bit messy or their rooms are messy, I have to just be able to say, you know what, that's not that's not the worst thing in the world. There's more important things right now, you know, and, and be able to let some things go or else I would probably go crazy trying to do yeah that. so I guess yeah exactly I love that yeah I guess that's my mom hack you can't do everything you have to be able to let some things go sometimes mm, that's good I love that um one other thing I didn't ask you about but I know you've mentioned is that you have really a great support system and community um of other moms who have children with uh down syndrome so I, I wanted to ask you for women listening to this who um, have a child with uh, special needs um, or who recently found out maybe they're pregnant now and they realize um, that they might have a child with uh, Down syndrome, do you have any resources or recommendations for where they can go to find community? Yes. Um, the Down Syndrome Diagnosis Network is hands down the best place I'd recommend. Um, that's Down syndrome specific anyways, um, if you're looking for community or support. They have birth clubs on, face, on Facebook um, that's by year. Uh, so I am in the original group because I am one of the original rockin' moms um, that was there from the beginning. But they have them all by year. So not only are you going to be with other moms who have kids with Down syndrome, but it's going to be kids your same age. 
Um, mm-hmm. you're like 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, 2016, 2017, whatever the case may be. And then on top of that, they also have groups for, um, all kinds of different, I mean, leukemia, heart defects, GI issues, infantile spasms, you know, so it's really, I mean, anything you're going through, you'll be connected to other moms who are also going through it or have already survived it and can help you. And, um, they also have retreats once a year and they have scholarships to help fund those retreats. And, you know, they have, lots of resources to learn about down syndrome. And if you feel like you didn't have a good interaction with the doctor who provided the diagnosis, they have a feedback program because that's part of the goal is to help um, change the way that a diagnosis is given so that moms don't have that negative um, experience anymore. So it's just lots of really great programs through them. So it's the down syndrome diagnosis network. I very highly recommend them. Awesome. Wonderful. And I will put that in the show notes as well for people who are interested. Um, So thank you so much, Cassie, for coming on. And thank you for just your honesty and vulnerability with sharing about uh, your experiences. I I really do appreciate that. Thank you. I was glad to be here. Let me go ahead and close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this time to share with one another. Thank you for the women listening today. I pray, Lord, that wherever they are, um, that you would just make your presence known to them, Lord. Bring them your peace and your joy that surpasses all understanding. Jesus, we love you and we offer this in your holy name. Amen. Hi friends, thanks for listening in today. I was so grateful for Cassie's tips for talking with your kids about how everyone is different, uh, but that we have a lot of similarities as well. I honestly feel just a lot more peace and less fear about talking with my kids or approaching parents of children with different abilities. I think my main fear was not wanting to be offensive or insensitive, so I was so glad to have Cassie put some of those fears to rest. I hope you all were encouraged as well. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at diapersanddisciples or at diapersanddisciples.com. And some exciting news, I have been planning for season two of the show coming in August, which I'm really excited about. I'm really going to be focusing in more specifically on the purpose of the podcast, which is living out the Great Commission as a mom. And I'm going to be doing some three or four part series focusing on different aspects of that. So discipling our kids, ministry, prayer life, and home life, among other things. So I wanted to ask you, if you have a suggestion for the show or topic you'd want discussed, you can send it my way at diapersanddisciples.com slash contact. Thanks for listening in. Until next time, you all are in my prayers.